Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday 10 o'clock worship sermon. I'm Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. During the 10 o'clock service, the church is going through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We are in chapter 8, uh, the section that deals with Christ the Mediator. And we are going to read and study paragraph 5. Paragraph 5 says this about Jesus. The Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. One of the most fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of justification. Uh, The two foremost leaders of the Protestant Reformation Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin were significant in the Reformed Church's understanding of the doctrine of justification. Although Calvin came behind Luther, uh, he viewed justification by faith as the hinge on which religion turns. Uh, The most important reformer uh, that had to Uh, deal with justification by faith, in my opinion, was Martin Luther. Uh, According to uh, Dr. Luther, uh, without justification, uh, the entire world would remain in utter darkness and chaos. Uh, Luther was a former Catholic, uh, and as a former Catholic, his journey to understanding justification by faith wasn't easy for him. According to his own lectures, uh, Luther originally hated the term justification. He was afraid of the term righteousness. Uh, The thought that a sinner, as bad as Luther was, having to stand before a holy God and give an account of his own life was extremely troubling for him. Luther tried everything to escape God's righteous judgment, but the way out always eluded him. For years, Luther would punish his own body. Uh, There are stories that he used to sleep on the bare floor. He would starve himself. He would climb up and down stairs numerous times uh, to punish himself. For his sins. He never missed Mass as a Catholic, confession. Uh, He always participated in the church disciplines. Uh, Luther mistakenly believed that he could do enough of these works to cancel his spiritual debt. And all these things proved fruitless for him. Finally, uh, Dr. Luther received his spiritual breakthrough. Uh, And this breakthrough reverberated throughout the entire 
Roman Catholic Church. What was his spiritual breakthrough? He understood the righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Up to this point, Luther only viewed the righteousness of God as God's justice. That God was so righteous that no sinner could be justified in his sight. I mean, on what terms could a holy and righteous God accept a sinner like Luther? Certainly not by Luther's character. Certainly not by Luther's works. A sinner... Uh, Luther thought doesn't possess the required righteousness in order to be justified by a holy and just God. So how could a sinner be made righteous in the sight of a perfectly righteous God? And, And Luther finally had his breakthrough by God imputing his own righteousness to the sinner. That's how. Luther finally believed in justification by faith alone. That God, when a sinner calls out to God for repentance, calls out to God for salvation, by having faith in Jesus Christ, Luther finally believed that the sinner would be made righteous because God would impute his son's righteousness to the sinner. When Luther finally understood this, the entire course of the Protestant Reformation began. And so did the process of his excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church. Our study this morning is on the obedience of Christ, without which no man can become righteous. What does Jesus' obedience have to do with righteousness? Our righteousness. Our righteousness is Christ's obedience. The only righteousness that we can claim is the righteousness that's imputed to us because of Christ. Since Jesus perfectly obeyed God, he is perfectly righteous. And this is the righteousness that's granted to us. This is the righteousness that God gives to the sinner when the sinner has faith in Christ. Therefore, Christ's obedience is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. When we talk about the obedience of Christ, we're really talking about two kinds of obedience. Uh, There is the active obedience of Christ, and this is the popular kind of obedience. When we talk about Christ's obedience, we're, we're usually referring to his active obedience. And there is the less popular, the second kind of obedience, is Christ's passive obedience. Technically, we probably shouldn't call them two kinds of obedience. In order to sound intelligent and theological, Active and passive obedience of Christ is commonly referred to as Christ's twofold obedience. Twofold. His active and passive obedience. 
I mentioned earlier that Christ's active obedience is the one that we are most familiar with. When we talk about Christ's active obedience, we're describing the things that Christ observed in order to or obtain eternal life for us. The active obedience of Christ describes the things that Jesus fulfilled. What did Christ observe perfectly? What did he perfectly fulfill? And the answer is the law of God. Jesus fulfilled God's law by doing everything the law requires. Now, don't you see how significant Christ's obedience is? Since Jesus perfectly obeyed every duty that God's law requires, he can submit himself as a perfect sacrifice for sins. The act of obedience of Christ is so easy to explain that even a child can understand. So if your children ask you, Mom, Dad, what is Christ's act of obedience? Your answer is, it is the part where Christ kept the law. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He perfectly obeyed God's law in thought, in word, and in deed. And since he was able to do that, when Jesus goes to the cross, he dies on that cross a righteous man. And so he presents himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Recently in our study, if you go back and listen to this last few months, of the Baptist Confession, we have referred to Christ as the second Adam. Uh, the first Adam, the first man that God created in the Garden of Eden, he did not render perfect obedience to God. Uh, therefore, he, his wife, and all of his offspring, sinners, because of Adam's sin, God imputed his sin to us. Therefore, we're all born sinners. We're all born with a sin nature. We're all born with a desire to sin. We have no desire for God. We have no desire for the things of God. And unless we are born again, we remain in that perpetual state of sin. We, we remain in a perpetual state of enmity with God. We, we hate him. But Christ is the second Adam. What the first Adam failed to do, Christ accomplished. Now, if Adam would have obeyed the Lord, if Adam would have perfectly obeyed the Lord, then his perfect righteousness would have been imputed to all his offspring. But that didn't happen. And instead of obtaining perfect righteousness, we obtain Adam's curse. We obtain Adam's sin. And what is the curse that we obtain from Adam? Death. But on the other hand, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly obeyed God. He kept all aspects of God's law. And so Christ, because of his perfect righteousness, he obtains the blessing of life. And that blessing of life is now imputed to all of his offspring. So all those who have faith in Christ 
that curse of Adam is removed by the blessing of life. That's what the act of obedience of Christ does for us. Because Christ perfectly obeyed the law of God, and he does so through his act of obedience, he obtains God's favor, he obtains God's uh, gift of eternal life, and he grants that favor, he grants that faith, he grants that eternal life to all of his offspring, that those who embrace Jesus by faith alone, your gift is now the gift of life. Adam's curse is removed from you. That's why Christ's obedience is significant. Without it, we remain under the curse of Adam's sin. Without the obedience of Christ, we remain in a perpetual state of sin. We are consigned to death. But thanks be to Christ for his perfect obedience. Thanks be to Christ for his perfect active obedience. Where is this taught in Scripture? Where is it taught in Scripture that Christ is our righteousness? That because of Christ's obedience, he is our righteousness. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is chapter addresses the perfection of God's law. Remember in the Gospels when Jesus was approached by the lawyer and the lawyer asked him which is the greatest commandment? Jesus quoted to him Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, according to Jesus, addresses the entire moral duty of a man. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25. It says, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So God commands man to obey him, to be careful to obey him. And if we do, it will be righteousness for us. Obviously, Adam, Eve, we've all failed. None of us can perfectly keep God's law. So instead of it being righteousness for us, it's unrighteousness for us. Instead of it being life for us, and immortality, it's not. It's death and mortality. But listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. The scripture says, And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see the connection? According to Deuteronomy 6, if we carefully obey God's law, it will be righteousness for us. 
but we failed. But through Christ's perfect righteousness, through Christ's perfect obedience, God freely grants righteousness to the sinner. God gives us the righteousness of Christ. And because of his obedience, he becomes our righteousness. In our place. The same law that we disobey, Christ submitted to. And he perfectly, he wins our obedience. He is that for us. He becomes our righteousness. And that's the active obedience of Christ. That Jesus, when he took on human flesh and he came to earth, he submitted to God's law and he perfectly kept it in thought, in word, in deed. And because of that, Jesus presents himself on the, on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. And because of his obedience and his willingness to go to the cross, and we'll get to that a little bit, that's coming next, but because of his willingness, his active obedience and keeping the law, plus his willingness to go to the cross, God then takes his righteousness and gives it to us. And that willingness, that's his passive obedience. Christ's active obedience is what he observes. Jesus observes the law. He perfectly keeps the law. His passive obedience describes his willingness. And that's often overlooked by us. Whenever we talk about the obedience of Christ, we are mostly referring to his active obedience. But his passive obedience is just as significant. And his passive obedience describes his willingness to become a man. His willingness to suffer. His willingness to be mocked and to be beaten and to be rejected. His willingness to die on the cross. Jesus knew before he did any of this that the experience, what the experience would be like. He knew he would be rejected. He knew he would be despised. He knew he would be despised and rejected by the same people he created. Jesus knew of the suffering. He knew of the mental and emotional pain, the crucifixion. He knew all these things because he designed them. But despite knowing the torment, the suffering, the stress, the anxiety... He volunteered himself to experience them. That's his passive obedience. I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, the passions of the Christ. You've probably seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It was a movie that was that's focused on the sufferings of Christ, especially beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where the movie begins, is in the garden. The climax is on the crucifixion, is on the cross when he's crucified. But here's here's something that that I believe, right? I believe Christians can relate to Christ's passive obedience 
more than we can relate to his active obedience. Jesus' passive obedience emphasizes uh, his, his servant nature. Uh, Jesus as a servant. His active obedience emphasizes the perfection of Jesus, right? And we, we can't relate to that. But we should, as Christians, be able to relate to his passive obedience, the things that he experiences. Jesus' passive obedience emphasizes his desire to suffer, his, his desire to experience trials. Uh, it describes Jesus becoming a servant, a slave. And to be honest, the greatest desire of Christians is to be a servant of God, to do the, the will of God, to submit to God, even if it means suffering. And so we should be able to relate more to Jesus' passive obedience than his active obedience. Um, I, I hope that we, we see how significant his active and passive obedience are. The twofold obedience. Uh, as especially how significant it is to his role as a mediator. Jesus' role as a mediator uh, define, describes him as being a substitute for us. I mean, you, you can't take the uh, active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ away from that, you know? They, they are connected. His obedience is connected to him being a mediator. If Jesus doesn't perfectly obey the law, then he can't mediate for us. If Jesus doesn't voluntarily submit to these things, he can't mediate for us. And so his active and passive obedience is directly connected to him being a mediator. The last thing that I want to address this morning is the result of Christ's obedience. The result. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law, because Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to these things, including the crucifixion, God, accepting that, grants to us his son's perfect righteousness. That's the result. I mean, Christ's office as a mediator, significant. Why? Because of obedience. His obedience is significant. Why? Because we are granted his perfect righteousness, without which we couldn't get into heaven without which we couldn't be sons of God, without which God could not accept us. He, he cannot accept us on the basis of our righteousness because we don't have any. But Christ's righteousness is sufficient even to save the most wayward son, the most wayward sinner, I mean, think about the most vile sinner ever. I mean, when we think about bad people, right, we think of like Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler, some awful humans, right? As bad as they are, if they come to faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness is sufficient to cleanse all their sins, to present them before God as a righteous man. 
When we talk about uh, Christ's righteousness, the, the church over the years has uh, addressed two different types of righteousness. One type of righteousness is biblical and therefore correct. The other type of righteousness is contra-biblical and therefore incorrect. The two types of righteousness is the infused righteousness and the imputed righteousness. Now, the imputed righteousness, you've heard me use that term several times, even several times this morning. The term imputed righteousness describes what a sinner obtains instantly when he believes the gospel. It's, it's what we obtain instantly by grace, through faith, not by works. We don't, we don't get imputed righteousness. We don't receive imputed righteousness by human merit. And that's important. When a person believes in the gospel, when a person believes in Christ, sincerely believes, God takes the righteousness of his son and imputes it to him. It's a credit. It's a gift. It's a, it's a transaction given to him. Not based on any works of his own. Freely on the free mercy of God and the free grace of God. Uh, St. Augustine called this the great exchange. Christ takes your sin and you receive his righteousness. And it's, it's a singular act, it's instantaneous, and it lasts forever. It isn't gradual. It doesn't happen in parts. It never wears out. When God imputes to the sinner Christ's righteousness... It's an instantaneous, eternal work. It's an instantaneous and an eternal act of God. Now, the other type of righteousness is called the infused righteousness. The infused righteousness describes the process of becoming righteous. As we do good works, as the, we take the Lord's Supper, we pray, we ask for forgiveness... God gives us more and more of righteousness. And eventually, when we've done enough works, we become fully righteous. This is wrong. This kind of righteousness doesn't exist. The infused righteousness is a doctrine that was developed by the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a major topic for the Protestant Reformation. Luther hated it. The other reformers like Calvin and, and Knox, they hated it. The reason why is because infused righteousness is obtained by works. It's obtained by merit. And the Bible is clear. No man can be justified by his works. No man can be righteous through works. And so infused righteousness, the gradual making someone righteous through his works and obedience, that's heretical. The Bible teaches that a man becomes righteous, fully righteous, instantaneously, forever equal, 
at one moment, and the moment of when he believes by faith, when he accepts the gospel by faith alone, God imputes to him the righteousness of Christ. That's it. There's nothing infused. Righteousness is imputed to us. It cannot be, it cannot be rewarded for good works. It can only be granted by grace through faith. I, I fully enjoy talking about the obedience of Christ, uh, the righteousness of God, that God grants this great gift to us because of his son. Because his son voluntarily submitted himself to all this suffering, to the crucifixion, the torment, the stress, the anxiety, the distress. The son perfectly kept the law of God because we can't. He does it for us. He he does it in our place instead of us. And it's the righteousness that we have if we have it, it's not because of us. It's, it's his. He is our righteousness. He is our obedience. 